You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Ben's, Ben's part of our leadership year, and um, Ben leads a student small group. I do. As of this week for the very first time. Very exciting. How exciting. Yeah. Over to you. Hiya, guys. Good morning. Uh, so today we are reading from Daniel chapter one. So feel free to uh, turn, whether that be digital or physical. Here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Then he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach and to Azariah Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food and wine, uh, and they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king, To bring them into service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Good morning, everyone. Wonderful to see you. Um, Part two of our series in Daniel. Today we're going to be looking at how do we find favor? How do we find favor in Babylon? And I want to stay and linger another week in 
Daniel chapter one, that wasn't a mistake. And my wife said to me, aren't we supposed to be in chapter two? Um, <laughs> which shows how much we communicate during the week. Um, now, there's two reasons for that. Number one is Daniel 2 is really, really complicated. And next week, I'm speaking at another church. So Josh will be speaking <laughs> on Daniel 2 next week. And, uh, and also, I think it's really important that we continue to wrestle and to grapple with the ideas and the concepts of uh, the understanding of the era that we're in currently. Uh, earlier this week, I was retreating with some uh, pastors in the city and one of them um, has been using this pandemic season to, to shift their entire church in the way they do discipleship. And I'm really fascinated by this. And the whole idea that he's been uh, teaching his church uh, community is that they do not move on collectively as a church unless the whole church has got it. So take an idea of sharing your faith or the idea of generosity, they, they do not move on until the whole community has got that in the culture of their church. And I, I just love what they're, they're doing. And, uh, and that's why I want us to glean from Daniel as much as we can to help us go on this journey of really understanding the era that we're in. We, Joan and I passionately believe that our roles as shepherds of the church, accountable to the Lord, is to help us to uh, prepare for what is to come. Prepare for the world that we're in, but also prepare for what is to come. And so I don't just want to rush through the text. I want to come at it from different angles, so to speak, to uh, keep hammering the same nail. And, and as a headline, what Daniel and his friends uh, encountered in exile really mirrors our context for today, and is that they experienced cultural disorientation. That's, a, that's a, a phrase, a couple of words I'd love us to really get a hold of, cultural disorientation. And maybe that's what you've experienced and feel in our current culture. I certainly do, uh, increasingly so, where our world is being turned upside down and we find ourselves um, contrary to the values and the systems that are in our society today. And uh, if you think about it for a moment, and I touched on this a little bit last week, but I just want to reiterate it, is that um, we, we discovered some of the principles of successful living in Babylon. So this is what uh, that culture looked like in Babylon, which is a million miles away from the kingdom of God. And, and, and this is what it means to have that cultural domination in Babylon, which is what we see today. And I've just named five of these things. First of all was to identify. They identified the best and the brightest whilst they were young. That's why there's such a battle. That is why it's so important, a high value for us as a church community, that we prioritize our kids and our young people for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Uh, we need to pray for our young people. We need great role models for our young people. And as we see, cultural domination by Babylon is to identify these young people so if they can influence them and their minds and their hearts is that they can um, really bring an influence in Babylon for the future. The second thing was to isolate them. 
isolate them from their families, from their backgrounds. Daniel and his friends must be so lonely, uh, isolated from all that they have known, been familiar with their past, and now they find themselves here separated from their traditions. And um, I was thinking a little bit about those who um, have gone off to university. And I was thinking about when I went to university many years ago now. And you you go away from the encouragement of your parents, from your church, um, kind of influence and background and traditions, and you kind of thrust into this spiritual desert. And we just kind of uh, drop them off at the, at, the, at the front door and say, look, go and live for Jesus. And, uh, and, and it's really, really hard because the truth is, is you're isolated. And this is why, we, again, we place a huge emphasis in church on students and being here for our uh, university. Is that we need to uh, help young people to thrive whilst they're isolated and away from all that they deem to be normal and what they were brought up in. And we've seen this also during the last couple of years with the pandemic, is I think one of the, the major strategies that the enemy has, has wrought for people is to isolate them. We kind of build our own little worlds and, and nests, and we, uh, we kind of bunker down, as it were, and we want to protect ourselves. We want to live, as it were, in this, in this bubble and not allow harm to come near us. And of course, there's, there's a wisdom in that, and we, we demonstrated that as we led the church through that in terms of how we met, etc. But if we do not encourage one another in the way of meeting together, we're going to find more and more people are going to be isolated. And I think that uh, won't help people in their discipleship. The, the third thing is indoctrination. Um, this was Nebuchadnezzar's battle plan to indoctrinate people. Uh, we're here to change every one of your opinions and beliefs, everything that you learn from, and in today's context, from your parents, from your church, to get you to think in a totally different way. And I think we see this today primarily through our media-saturated, image-soaked culture, through indoctrination. Now, we do not reject social media and the internet and a lot of that stuff, but we're trying to redeem it. And there's a difference. And so we don't want to be separatists and reject these things, but we recognize there's an opportunity for the kingdom. And look, I think it was the, the BBC a couple of weeks ago um, did ran some stats on young people praying. Did everyone read that? Young people praying um, over the last year or so has, has gone through the roof, which is amazing. And I think a lot of that has, has been down to online church and the access that people may feel as the hunger for spirituality has, has grown um, in the last couple of years. And then, and then finally, um, fourthly, sorry, to indulge. Uh, verse five, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Indulge them. Give people a taste of the good life of prosperity just dangle that in front of them that sense of of comfort and I was thinking today that may look like for some of us who are on uh, a trajectory in terms of our career and uh, that's all good God wants to place leaders and uh, have people of influence in our careers 
but not at the expense of compromise. Uh, the, the temptation is if you want to get to the top, you need to bow the knee. And it may be so, so subtle. It, it, it may look like just some half-heartedness. Let's not go too public about your Christianity. And let's just keep our head down and play the game. And, and we surround ourselves, and particularly because of consumerism, this idea that those options and choices and wealth um, give us that sense of comfort. It's a false sense of comfort. And we see this in Jesus' really bad report to the church in Laodicea, where they thought they were doing great. They thought they were um, straight A's in attainment and effort, or is it nines now? A's and nines, I don't know. Um, but really, Jesus says, you're wretched and you're naked and you're blind and you're poor. They thought they were wealthy and doing well. But Jesus' report card was very different. And then finally, we see identity confusion. Changing their names, and they're being addressed by the name of a different God. And so there's this pressure on these young men to change who they are fundamentally at their core, their identity. And so bringing confusion, and we're seeing that uh, in a massive way at the moment, isolation is huge. Identity confusion has never been more rampant, especially on the assault on um, creation order and male and female, and the digital Babylon and the westernized view of the happy life, and that temptation to indulge endlessly to our appetites and whatever feels good. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. I was having a conversation with someone just um, yesterday where basically my truth is based on how I feel. And I was like, no, that is not the case. That is not what a disciple is. It's not based on how you feel. You can, have, uh, you can make better choices so that you eventually your feelings do catch up. Now, Daniel and his friends, their approach in this, so just think, I'm trying to put a in-your-shoes approach to their culture, is that his response, their response, is not to compromise, is not to control, is not to manipulate or assimilate or to imitate, but to be a creative minority. Again, this is a term I'd love for us to really get a hold of and to adopt. A creative minority. And we see this theme throughout the book of Daniel. And the whole idea is, is how can we be a creative minority that helps us thrive in exile? Uh, Jonathan Sachs, I've been reading a fair bit of his stuff the last couple of years, a, a rabbi and theologian, and he first coined the phrase creative minority. And he says this, and I love it, a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships, knotted together in a living network of persons in a complex and challenging culture setting. And, and notice that a creative minority is not a, an idea or an ideology. It's a people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to work for good in the world. Now, I don't need to tell you, here's our issue, and this is the crux of the, of the issue, is that we're called to live in the middle. We're called to live in tension. We're called to... Uh, straddle that nice edge between separatism and syncretism to live in that prophetic tension. 
And Jonathan Sachs goes on to say this, to become a creative minority is not easy because it involves maintaining strong links with the outside world while staying true to your faith, seeking not merely to keep the sacred flame burning, but also to transform the larger society of which you are a part. This is, as Jews can testify, a demanding and risk-laden choice. So we're going to live in this tension between faithfulness to God, to the gospel, to the Bible, to the way of Jesus, to the kingdom, and to influence, influencing our world, to be soul and to be light. We're to be fully present here and now whilst longing and having a homesickness for another kingdom, for our true home. And I believe, church, this is an opportunity. This really is an opportunity. We are challenged to such a degree that in our discipleship, um, this, this, certainly in the last couple of years, real sifting, we're challenged into what do you actually believe? Do you really believe this? Are you, are you willing to go all in for the sake of Christ and his cause? And with that, sometimes the numbers shrink, but what it brings is a power and a potency in the church, a thriving in the margins of society. And we can be mentored by redemptive history with this looking at the Bible, but also in church history. I think about our city hero, William Wilberforce. Um, I mean, do you realize how hated he, he really was? Um, you know, if you get rid of slavery, you, you bankrupt the British Empire, and the whole economy back then was built on the slave trade. And he was part of a, a you know, group of friends called the Clapham Sect. And as a creative minority, they brought huge change in the face of demonic influence. Weren't popular, but did the right thing and stood up for injustice. Uh, just think about the time of Hitler. And imagine going to his rallies. Uh, imagine being an inconsequential PhD student there who ends up dying, being hung in a low-level Nazi camp. And he, he's part of the confessing church. And history tells us that that man, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was and is now a hero. As we look back, but you, you put yourself in his shoes. His PhD student turning up the rallies and then gets killed, executed, for standing up against injustice. Jesus dies on the cross, the ultimate expression, the cross of, of failure and humiliation. And then you've got from that 120 people, the birth of the early church in the upper room at Pentecost, a creative minority was born in the midst of persecution in the Roman Empire. And 300 years later, the Roman Empire bowing their knee to Jesus. From 120 people who witnessed the resurrection of Christ. And I was trying to think, what does that look like? And the best thing I could come up with is imagine a guy, say in Gibraltar, who was put to death by state execution because he said he was God. And then 300 years later, his religion, what he said, 
being the official religion of the UK. It's crazy when you think about it in those terms, but we're all sat here today worshipping, glorifying, lifting up the name of Jesus, being radically transformed by him because of what he did on the cross by his resurrection and a few faithful witnesses to the resurrection. Endowed by the spirit, power on a high, and then change the world, and we're all the benefactors of that. And it's our responsibility, it is our legacy to go on and do that for future generations in our city and beyond, in the nations of the world. So a creative minority that does not compromise, that lives in prophetic tension, this is an opportunity. And church, this isn't a time to go back. A lot of the emotion of churches, particularly in movements right now, are trying to go backwards into nostalgia, and how life used to be, this is not a time to go back. This is time for change and creativity and innovation. That is what happens to people in a creative minority. And, and, and I want to say this, and I want to say this with, I wish I could expand more on this with context, and I hope you hear my, the kind of the love in my heart when I say this, but for many, many years, I mean, you hear my staff team or leaders, I talk a lot about the trajectory of discipleship. We recognize, and I'm part of this, Joni is part of this, is that we're all wounded healers. We're broken. We all carry our own stuff and our pain. And we're just journeying through this life on our own journey and walk of discipleship. But I really believe that in the time of exile that we're in, is that there are many people who would say, look, I'm a nominal Christian but maybe have not fully lent into the things of discipleship, um, is that they've fallen off, off the grid, they've fallen off the map, and, and maybe you're like that today, is that you kind of just, you're on the periphery of things. And if the, what this exile period does is in five, 10, 15 years' time, the reality is, is that you could walk away from Jesus because people like that just don't make it through exile. Unless you're all in wholehearted, it's difficult to make it through. And Jesus, didn't he talk about this? He talked about whether you're in or you're out or whether you're a sheep or you're a goat. This is his language, that you're, you're his disciple. You're not following the crowd. It's not the wide road, it's the narrow road. And it's really unpopular. I feel it as I'm writing this this week. I'm like, this is unpopular to say. That is what exile does. So many things I could say even five years ago. I've been talking to other pastors about this. I'm like, okay, I just need to think about that. I need to contextualize it. I need to just think about how that's going to influence and affect someone, even though we know it's the truth. And this is a time of purity. It's a time of community. We've got to stick close together. We've got to be set apart. We've got to be holy. We've got to be creative and innovative. It's a new approach to church. I really believe that if we do this and embrace this, is that this can be a really unique and special time for us as a church community. And in fact, the church as a whole, but so many churches are shrinking back into nostalgia. We've got to go forward, recognize that the ground underneath our feet has, has given way. There's a whole new reality. And yes, we've, got, we've grieved that. It was sad for a season. It was discouraging for a moment. But the reality is, is that what comes next out of this season is stunning. It is beautiful. 
Now Daniel lived through this. He lived through this for like a whole 70 years. He saw leaders, different leaders, rise and fall. He lived in the tensions of this. This was his story. He's seen it all. And here's what he saw, that the more he and his friends and people were a minority, the more that they were displaced, the more, and this is the exciting bit, the supernatural began to happen. The supernatural power of God is all throughout the book of Daniel. It's a crazy book. Crazy stuff's happening. But supernatural stuff happens more in a time of exile. Now this is a worldview that we really need to fight against in the West. And the church, sadly, has subtly got a hold of this as well. Where many people in the Western world say that the material universe, basically what you see is all that there is. There's nothing beyond this material universe. And and that worldview can be compared to spending your entire life in a windowless room. And that's where Daniel found himself in, a windowless room. No door, no windows, no light coming in. And this whole idea is that everything you see in this darkened room, if you like, metaphorically speaking, is all that there is. There's, there's no, nothing beyond or outside the room. There's no window, there's no light, there's no access to God. There's nothing above, there's nothing beyond. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Josh just mentioned it about Alpha in terms of our secular society. I just think about it. Um, have you ever been in an environment where you offer someone prayer? And you say, you know, I, I had a dream last night or I had this picture. Um, I, I have this sense that as I was praying for you, God was saying something and that works fine in, in our home groups. We're like, yeah, bring it on. But you say that to your colleague who lives in a windowless room and they'll think you're, you're, you're crazy. Okay, you're talking to God <laughs> on my behalf and telling me this. Now, I really believe that In exile, the church is called to be a window in these dark rooms. You may be the only follower of Jesus in your office. But God wants you in this time to be the window. To be the window of light. To be that access. And one of the aspects of that supernatural activity is that Daniel attracted supernatural favor. Uh, Maybe we don't see the supernatural and signs and wonders like that, but I believe one of the hallmarks of a creative minority in exile in our era is that God will place supernatural favor on his people. In your places of work, where you do life, in your neighborhoods, it will be shocking to other people. There was this idea um, in Daniel's time that your God was attached to your geography. So that's why you got like the God of Babylon. But there's an allegiance to God by Daniel who is, and it's frequently written in, in, particularly in the Old Testament, who is above all other gods. In other words, I'm living for the audience of one, this God who's above all other gods, who sees me and I have access to There's a window there, and God is bringing his favor 
to Daniel and his friends. So he brings Daniel into arena with cultural elite. He brings him into a position of influence. He, he speaks uh, to powers in the land. And verse 9 says, Now God has caused the official to show favor. Verse 17, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Verse 20, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned him, he found them ten times better. I love that. Ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters his whole kingdom. I really believe God wants to mark our church with favor on the foundation of non-compromise. And I believe it goes hand in hand. Faithfulness, non-compromise, leads to influence marked by supernatural favor. You will find yourself asking, how did this happen? You will find yourself asking, how did I get in this room? How? It's not humanly possible. Why are they asking me these questions or to do this or to do that? And I almost want to just prophetically say that I believe as a church we're marked by this. We've already, I, I, I could get so many people up here who could give testimony that this is their experience. Supernatural favor in their life that's twinned with buffeting, that's twinned with trials and testing. If you want to talk about, if you think this is just a, a favor message, last Sunday night I talked about having a theology of suffering, so you can listen to that on the podcast just to balance things out. So yes, suffering, buffeting, trials, testing, that's part and parcel of being a follower of Jesus in this world. But supernatural favor with it. So how does this affect me? You might be thinking, how does this affect me tomorrow morning? How does this affect HR in the workplace? How do I know when I'm being a bit of a loser or a prophetic influencer? How do I hold the tension of not compromising or being a, a Pharisee? How do we do discipleship and raise other disciples? How do we do this? Well, I believe it comes with supernatural favor is we need wisdom. Favor is attached to wisdom. In fact, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor. They come hand in hand. Church, this is what we so desperately need in our times. We need to ask God daily for wisdom because we're going to find ourselves in situations that literally do have a thousand shades of gray. And, and what do I do? I, you know, we, we don't want to compromise, but we're here to influence. We're here to live as in prophetic tension, what do we do? We need wisdom and discernment. And to do that, you've got to lean into the voice of God. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. So we've got to pray, we've got to ask God, God, it's like all the time, give me wisdom. All the time. And I love that kind of like the monastic rhythms of our daily life. Maybe you've got that in your workplace where it's just like at nine and at 12 and at three and at six and at nine, you've got these rhythms. It's like just checking in with God and just saying, Lord, give me wisdom, give me discernment, how to navigate the times that we're in. I've got this difficult situation. I've got this conversation I need to have. They've, they've, they've said, asked something of me. The boss has asked something of me. I need wisdom how to navigate this scenario. Last week, we looked at 
this, we're told that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. But this, this was no rash decision. This was no impulse statement. This was a reasoned choice from the convinced mind of Daniel, the wise mind of Daniel. Let, let's be wise and let's put a plan into effect. He, he didn't gather around his friends and, and get some risky banners to wave in public and then march around the palace making a lot of noise. No. He went to the chief official and asked for permission not to eat the royal food and drink the royal wine. And when the chief official got scared that Nebuchadnezzar would take it out on him and chop his head off, he took the choice food away from Daniel and his friends. Even at this point, Daniel suggested a very wise course of action. If you look at verse 12 to 14, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables, vegetarians in the house. Again, okay, no. To eat and water to drink, then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now, Jesus says this to his followers. We're to be innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. Perfect combination. People of integrity, non-compromise, but people of wisdom. So that's what we're going to think about. When, when we take these actions as followers of Jesus, recognizing we do it for him and to glorify him, is that we do it with wisdom. I've known many people over the years that say, oh, do you know what? I'm just being persecuted for my faith and I'm like, I'm not sure. Yes, you're supposed to be persecuted for the gospel, but maybe it's the way you're communicating that people are thinking, I don't want to follow the God that is apparently changing you. So we need to think about how we communicate. Paul says to the church in Corinth, I became all things to all people I might save some. Enter into people's worlds so that we can reach them. We're gonna learn to speak the language of the culture, learn and listen to people. What is going on in the hearts? What is going on? What is the treasure in the hearts? How can I wisely approach this? What's so wonderful is that when they did this, is that God granted them success. At the end, they looked in fantastic shape. God granted them success because they stepped out in non-compromise, but with wisdom. This isn't a biblical command, by the way, to be a vegetarian or to be a teetotaler, okay, just in case you get that. But this is a wonderful affirmation that God will look after his faithful people. He'll look after his faithful people. Now, I just want to finish with a pastoral word um, in conclusion. I'm going to do some ministry. Now, in order to be a window that connects us with the world, we want to reach out without selling out. That's the tension. We want to reach out and influence without selling out. We want to find a way to follow Jesus that connects with the world I live in. And so, therefore, we don't want our spiritual lives and our real lives to be at all separate okay 
going to be intertwined. And I believe we need wisdom like never before and discernment for the cultural age. We need to develop the muscle of wisdom and discernment because we can't live in these times of of tension and complexity without wisdom. And what's really important is that we need to move from self-preservation and protection and this kind of run-to-the-hills mentality to preparation. Consecrate yourselves today, for tomorrow God will do amazing things among you, says in Joshua. In other words, today, make every day as a day of preparation. Prepare yourselves for what the world is not and what we wish it could be. And so therefore, we, we, we cannot go around with our heads buried in the sand and hope that it all goes away. And I just want to give a word to parents in the church. Because you play a huge role, a huge role, probably the biggest role, in helping our children to live in this way. Because this is our future. And if we try and bury our heads in the sand and we try and let's protect them by protecting us as a family unit and not engaging with the issues of today, I believe that you're going to find yourselves coming unstuck in the future. And so what we need to do is to give our children reasons why we believe what we believe, but crucially living examples of an alternative kingdom good life. And I want to take just briefly the issue of pornography. Don't think for one moment we can educate our young people on pornography with, first of all, having an issue with it ourselves. Or pretending that our children will not be impacted by it in the future. This is not something that's way down the line. This is something now. And if you're a mom or a dad, in our church, and this is a struggle for you, you need to be transparent. Get the help that you need. And know that this is a grace community and we will help you go on that journey. But you need to realize that the effect that it's having on your children, whether they ever see it or not, in the spirit is huge. It is huge and it is opening doors to the demonic in your home. Because the world's view, and this is what it means to be an exile, is either positive or, at worst, neutral. So teaching with transparency and communication is the most important thing we do. In other words, tackle it. Do not bury your head in the sand and think, this will all go away, or I put this, this, um, even some filters on in your home life. That doesn't necessarily stop these things because our climate culturally with social media and the schools and various other things means that this is out there all the time and celebrated. So first of all, church, we've got to be different. We've got to be role models in this area on a huge scale. And we've got to teach openly, engage with wisdom, communication and conversation with our kids. Talk about the corrosive nature of it to our souls, how it deadens our souls. Talk about how it is objectifying humans, and that's not God's desire. Cheapen sex. Talk about playing the tape forward. What are the consequences of doing such a thing? Talk about 
the issues of sex trafficking and the eternal consequences and the sacredness of our minds and our bodies and the beauty of it. The wisdom of having boundaries and online rhythms. Digital Babylon is part of our world. It's here to stay. And what we're going to do is not bury our heads in the sand, but engage with our young people. Talk about it. Be transparent. But full authority, full authority in these issues is only if we are not participating in them. If we want to see people set free from it, then we have to be free in those areas. And so I want to encourage you, parents, you're doing an amazing job. <laughs> An outstanding job. This is tough, tough season we're in. It's a tough season, tough climate, tough couple of years. Who knows the mental health and emotional weight it will be on our kids in the future. Parents, you're doing an outstanding job. And we want to say as a church, we're here for you. We're here to go on the journey with you. But please do not bury your head in the sand. Please do not take a bunker mentality. Engage with wisdom. Ask God for wisdom and discernment. And let's help each other go on this journey. Thank you for listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to hallvineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.